Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We are here today with Professor Dr. Mark Hull. Welcome. Hi. Mm -hmm. So let's start with a discussion of your academic background. Tell us a little bit about what uh, schools and what background and interests you have. Uh, I started out at, as a graduate. I was a graduate of the Citadel. I uh, did my master's degree. Uh, went into the Army. Actually, went into the Army after graduation from the Citadel. Uh, had gotten out. Uh, went back to law school. Um, went back for my PhD. Went back in the Army. And then I'm just finishing up now a uh, doctorate in law with a, uh, the German University in Nuremberg. Okay. So let's start with the, the history side of this. What drew you to the study of history and military history specifically? My father was a career army officer, so we moved a good bit. Uh, part of that was uh, a couple trips to Europe. And I think it's impossible to live there for any length of time without being fascinated by what's around you thousands of years worth of history, uh, Roman period, which I've, I've always had a, a fondness for the ancient world, through the modern period, uh, the two world wars, and I think that's probably what in some ways drove my interest both in law and uh, my uh, history PhD topic was uh, modern Germany. Okay, and, and in terms of your um, lawyer side and your military side. How do you mesh those with your historian side? My focus with history and law is the modern uh, 20th century war crimes, which has elements of both. You have to understand the history to to do the law properly, and I think you have to understand the law to do some of the history properly. It the focus is on the Nuremberg trials and after. But it goes, of course, all the way back to the First World War. Okay. Tell us what you teach here at uh, CGSC in addition to the core and AOC classes that all of our instructors teach. My electives are focused on war crimes. Uh, I have in the past done one on advanced uh, criminal trial practice. So it's the nice thing about one of the nice things about working at CJSC is they're kind enough to let me indulge both of my, my interests. And how do you find a, a class like war crimes, which is an important part of military history, but but maybe not the first topic people think of when they think of military history? How do you find that that fits with the officer students we have? It's essential. The there is no other population I can think of that is certainly is for whom you, the utility of, of thinking through the issues of the laws of war is going to have any greater significance. Um, they see it. Uh, when war comes, they see death, they see violence. And one of the, the core beliefs that I hope that we exemplify is a commitment toward making sure that, that people aren't killing and hurting people 
who are entirely innocent. Uh, and that's the essence, I think, of, of, of the concept of war crimes prevention and war crimes prosecution. Okay. And as I understand it, you've also practiced law in, in a non-military setting. Um, how do you find that that helps inform you as a, as a professional, as a scholar, and as an educator? I don't think you can teach legal history or war crimes without actively understanding how the court system works, and there's no better way to do that than firsthand experience. To get your mind around prosecution, you have to have prosecuted. It's one thing to understand it at a level where it's academic and you read about it, and quite another if you are fascinated in some cases by the nuts and bolts means by which cases come together. Things, decisions can turn on the smallest things and those are precisely the sort that you might miss if you're just doing a very superficial pass. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a valuable skill for a historian as well. It is. I, I noticed too, um, of course our listeners can't see this, but you're, you're wearing cufflinks that look to be either Assyrian or Babylonian. Assyrian. Uh, Assyrian um, statues and, and you have uh, some ancient Near East archaeology in your office. Um, so tell us a little about your interest in, in archaeology in the ancient Near East. I, I started out in college as an archaeology major, and I discovered that I, I didn't like living outside with bugs, so I, I switched to history. But it goes back to perhaps the coolest class field trip we ever took when I was in, in middle school. Uh, they had taken us to a slate quarry in Germany and uh, you got a chisel and a hammer and a bucket and you cracked open pieces of slate and there were uh, antique ancient uh, sea creatures inside. So it was a way, so you, you're looking at ammonites or, or trilobites and I, I just, I sort of caught the bug that that was a cool thing and I think one of the, the problems with it is that I can never completely let go of something that interests me, so I'll continue to sort of follow it, even though as, as the years go by, I become more and more of a kind of a weak amateur. <laughs> I think we all have those uh, interests and, and subfields, um, and, and I think maybe the commonality in all of them, as you mentioned, is a focus on detail. And I think that that's a valuable skill for a historian. I, I think it's, as much as anything, probably a focus on curiosity. Uh, there are so many things that I don't know and that I should know or would like to know. I'll never get to most of them, but you, you, you're trying to, to section your time enough to where you can get a little bit of, of a lot of things, maybe more than you... you I guess in some ways maybe like the golf analogy, which is I'm never going to get that a perfect golf game, but there's satisfaction in, in just getting having a good shot every now and then or getting close enough. Mm -hmm. Another thing that a visitor to your office can't help but see is the uh, plethora of references to San Francisco. So there's, there, there's one or two. <laughs> what's your connection there? Uh, I grew up there, and it's my happy place. Okay. Um, we go back probably three times a year, and here maybe in the not-too-distant future, that, that's going to be our retirement spot. Okay. Very nice. 
tell us about how you approach synthesizing all of your interests into a classroom lesson. Maybe one that's not necessarily in an elective or directly related to one of those fields. I, I would almost need to think about the question a little bit. Um, what I find is the more areas where I at least have a little bit of experience allows me to formulate better questions or draw people out in ways that I might not be able to do otherwise. Uh, I've got a pretty healthy dose of, of Jesuit education and one of the, the, the things there is of course Socratic method sorts of things or virtue ethics or, or, or other sort of thing, or sort of topics. And the more I know, hopefully the better I can can help people develop those skills in themselves. Okay. Very good answer. And, and as someone who has uh, studied Jesuit thought as well, I certainly appreciate that. Uh, who is your favorite person from history and why? Oh, wow. Let, let me let part of my brain work on that as we go forward because I, I honestly don't know. I, I'm tempted to, I, I, it could be anybody. Um, probably not a military figure and I'm trying to narrow, narrow the thing down. It would almost either be Bach. I don't know. It's a good question and I don't really have a, I don't have a very helpful answer maybe to that right now. Well, you just gave us a piece of one, right? Why why would Bach come to mind? Among the other list of, of thousands of things that I've tried unsuccessfully, I, I played the violin and the piano for a while, and I was never very good at it. And I think my teachers recognized that I wasn't very good at it. But it's another one of those things where even knowing a little bit about it from the inside helps me understand and appreciate more than I would otherwise. Yeah, and Bach is one of those composers where you can you can hear the genius, right? He's he's one of the handful. Mozart's another one, and there are some even minor composers from the Baroque era that that very few people have heard about, where 100% of their catalog is a pleasure to listen to. It's not like you have a, an album where there's a good song or two good songs. They're all good songs. And it's incredibly relaxing to me in pretty much uh, every way that something can be. If I'm just sitting or if I'm working, it allows part of my brain just to enjoy itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can certainly identify with that as well. You, you've mentioned you're a Germanist, you've talked about German archaeology, we're now talking about German music. So is that a product of, you mentioned your father was in the military, does that come from just an interest or a language facility? I, I, I can't, don't have a really good explanation for that. Uh, my parents were, were both really terrible linguists, were really awful. And I was just around it, and I think especially if you're growing up, if you're living in a German neighborhood, I went to a German school for a little while, you have to sort of, you know, swim or die, and I think it occurred at an early enough period to where I found foreign languages and then finally like foreign written languages. 
just kind of a cool thing to do. Yeah, and I imagine that would be helpful for particularly the study of war crimes in the 20th century. I, I think it helps you focus on the specifics of the written word because in law everything can turn on a how you want to interpret or define something. Uh, you learn to pay attention in certain ways that are really very difficult to explain, uh, that you're giving all your attention to the way somebody says something or the vocabulary or their syntax. Uh, if you're listening to a witness talk, that, that there's, there's almost like a different gear that you have to go to if, if, if you really want to do this well. Yeah, and that, that raises a very kind of interesting dichotomy where on the one hand we have the world of the lawyer reading, interpreting statutes and language, and on the other side the, the historiographer who often creates the interpretation. Um, so do you find any issue with those or do you find they fit together well? They're problematic in one sense, which is, again, it, it allows me to focus on things in a certain way, but what I also find is it makes me almost hyper-conscious of how bad some of the things that I've written are. So, for example, and this, this is probably in some ways healthy, but it, for example, if I go back and I look at anything that I've written last year or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, Except for one book review, I think I find it very deeply embarrassing that I wasn't a better writer or a better communicator, and I would heavily edit anything that I've ever done if I had to do it over again now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's probably a common uh, published historian's issue. I know I've, I've run into the same problem. That's yeah, it's funny how we work, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's there's probably some, some some mental illness involved, but yeah, I I think it's it's a common common thing. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people might agree. Uh, sitting in dusty rooms reading old parchment is uh, indicative of something. But all right, well, Dr. Hall, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.